Right, can you hear me, everybody? Um, we can maybe make a start. It's just after four o'clock, so I'll let people come in. They can uh, join us as we go along. Um, my name is Peter Temple. I'm the principal examiner um, for the A302 exam. Um, been doing this since ASA decided to uh, localize it, so I don't know how many years, quite a lot. Um, Ryan Chigwin is the other person that's going to be presenting, and Ryan is one of the examiners. Um, for A302, we actually have two examiners uh, who, who are responsible um, for the setting um, and the standards behind the exams as well. So uh, that's the background to the two of us. What we're going to do is, um, I just want to talk a little bit generally, firstly about the A302 exam, and then um, after that, Ryan is actually going to go through the technical content of the exam. Um, I'm going to very briefly go through some of the communication aspects of the questions. Um, and um, and then we'll take questions as well if you've got any questions. Having said that about the questions, I'm also very happy for you to stop along the way and ask me questions. Um, we I think we both prefer that. So if you want something clarified, um, please stop us and ask us along the way. Um, they do ask because they're recording the session that um, we uh, if you are going to ask a question, you need to ask it into the mic. So when you stick your hand up, I'll. We'll come running down with the mic and, and give you an opportunity to uh, say your question so it's recorded for eternity, and then, um, and then we'll answer it. Um, so that's just the, what, we, what we plan to do today. Um, as I said, please, please just stop us. The, the purpose is really to make this as interactive as possible. Um, just to start with, how many people here have written the communications exam before? I assume those you're not here because you haven't, uh, because you've passed. Um, so those who haven't written it before, we're writing it. Few people, okay. Um, and um, are you all planning? Is anybody not planning to write it in the next session, or is everybody here writing it in the next session? Anybody not writing? Yeah, just one person looks like okay, a very diligent person. Um, the okay, so that just gives me an idea of wh where we're coming from. So, um, as I said, we're, we're quite happy to take questions. Um, uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, how many people have been to the session before? I did one. We did one earlier this year. Okay, two or three, four. Okay, so you might see some of the stuff um, that we've said before, but um, clearly you needed to hear it again if you're still sitting here. Um, so um, I'm just going to go through some of the general stuff just to give you an idea of a little bit of the general things, um, and and then how and then how we work, and then um, and then hopefully also just give you some general comments again um, about the communications exam. And the first thing is just to give you an idea. As I said earlier, we have two examiners, and they set the exam papers. Um, and we also have communications experts, and we don't necessarily consider ourselves to be communications experts because we're actuaries. Um, I don't think we're bad communicators. I think that's the reason why we're doing the job we're doing. But it's quite useful having people outside of the industry, outside of the actuarial profession, um, who actually help us. And, um, and one of the advantages of that from our perspective is that sometimes the things that we would consider to be um, straightforward, they, from outside the industry, are actually ask us and say, do you really mean that? Um, is that what you really meant? Is that what the candidate really meant? So it's quite useful um, from that perspective as well. Um, we set the question. We work out a model solution. The examiners work out a model solution, and they work out a mark schedule. So in fact, you actually get three things. We, um, we actually try to give a solution that we think would be a good answer to the question. It's not the only answer to the question. I think that solution is actually published um, on the ASA website. It's not the only solution to the question that would get you a pass. 
um, it is just a um, example of what we consider to be good enough. And what we do that for is actually while we do that before we actually even mark the exam is well, one of the things we want to check to see is is it possible to actually answer this uh, exam in the number of questions and number of words that we're actually prescribing. Um, sometimes people say it's impossible to answer that question in the markdown word count. Um, you'll see that if you actually look at our word solutions, they actually do fit into the word count. Um, and so it shows you that it is possible. If we can't answer it in the word count, we would change the question. Um, so that's one of the reasons why, why we do it as well. So that's just the background to the exam setting side of things. Um, if you're worried about the marking, you'll say, well, actually, how do I know that actually the marking is done fairly? Um, we've got quite an elaborate process to make sure that our marking is done as fairly as possible. Um, we, um, we start off marking actually three papers. You get randomly picked. If you're one of those three papers, you end up getting marked by all the markers um, and uh, all of the examiners. So you've really got the, the most ex uh, extensive marking that's done. But what ha that enables us to do is to have a look and see, um, are there any problems? Are there any questions? Um, are, have there been things that people misinterpreted um, that we need to take into account when we actually come into the marking? Um, so we have that, we, ha we mark those, those scripts, and then we have about an hour and a half telephone conference where all the markers are present uh, on the call, and we go through the various aspects of those scripts to be able to actually understand and see what we are doing. Um, so it really does, uh, it's quite an elaborate process, but I think it's quite a fair process to make sure that we do have um, a good, fair pr approach to the marking schedule and that we do. And then that marking schedule is actually adjusted. So if, for instance, um, we notice that a lot of the scripts are actually missing a particular point or have misinterpreted something or have changed something, uh, we may actually uh, change the marking schedule uh, to allow for that. So that we've got a standardized marking schedule and then the markers actually mark um, the papers according to that. Every paper is marked twice, once by an actuary and once by a communications person. Um, so it's not just, again, randomly you might get a very strict marker. Um, so that's one of the things we do. We amalgamate the marks 50-50. Um, and then I review all of the marginal scripts and any scripts that are outliers between um, the, the, what I would expect to see and what we actually do see. Um, and I normally review about 30% uh, of the scripts, um, so which is, those are the marginal scripts. So quite a significant chunk of people actually get effectively marked three times. Um, so the chances are if you fail the exam, um, you really have failed the exam. Um, and somebody actually has really plied their mind to making sure that we, we have thought carefully about um, what you have done. So that just gives you an idea of um, where we come from from a marking perspective. Uh, hopefully it gives you a little bit of confidence in that uh, we're not randomly pulling your names out of a hat. Um, I just want to give some general comments um, to um, to the exam and to the communications exam before we go into some of the detail because um, I, every time I talk about these things I always say these things and then we see the same things uh, occurring um, many times. So firstly people always ask us about what happens if I can't do a technical calculation or if I make a technical mistake um, in the exam. So this last exam there was a reasonably technical um, question, one of them, um, and people battled with that. Uh, Ryan will cover that off in terms of how you can actually handle it. Um, we differentiate by what we consider to be a minor technical flaw and what I would consider to be a fatal flaw. Um, somebody at your level already should have certain basic knowledge of actuarial things. Um, and if you 
go against um, a, a basic actuarial principle and make a thing, if you say it should have gone up and actually should have gone down, and really we do expect you to know that it should have gone down, um, if you make a basic flaw like that, we consider that to be a fatal flaw, and particularly if you're giving advice to somebody based on that flaw, um, we will not pass you. Um, our markers will highlight that and say that's a fatal flaw in the answer that you are giving, and therefore you do not deserve to pass. Um, probably there are about 150 candidates, 160 candidates write the script. There are probably four to five people every session that make what I would consider to be a fatal flaw and are flagged by um, the markers. I will check that, and if I agree with them, um, we do fail them. Um, so don't make fatal flaws, but we really don't expect you to at this point in time in your actual um, training. You shouldn't be making these flaws. These are not complicated things. These are straightforward things. Um, so it's you know things that we would expect you to know better at this point in time um, in your in your career. So that's that is that is quite important. Um, we are sometimes checking the accuracy and the understanding that you can present about a technical thing. Um, so particularly if you're being asked to present something or give an answer to a layperson, your mother or your father or whatever it might be, um, we do want you to be able to explain that in a non-technical way to them and you need to do it accurately. You can't lie to them um, and if you lie to them or you misstate facts to them, um, we will not pass you as well. So that's quite important. So some people sometimes seem to think that they can get away with misstating or uh, incorrectly stating facts and that we will just wash over that. Uh, we would consider that to be flawed and we would not pass somebody who does that. And interesting enough, often what happens is the communications markers will pick that up um, rather than even the actuarial markers. And when they pick it up, um, they flag that to us and again, um, we will not pass those people. Um, there are generally a couple of people in every session that do that. Anybody got any questions on that? Um, the second one that um, I always talk about as well is it is incredible to me that people make what I consider to be really stupid mistakes and it really costs people and I have seen people um, it being mo particularly marginal candidates really costing them their posts or not and it relates around two things. Um, firstly typos, um, just typing the wrong information in or using the wrong name or whatever it might be um, and it's, it's just somebody hasn't clearly gone back and read over their work. If you had have read over it you would have noticed it. And, um, and then the small things are getting the simple things right. Um, in this last exam, I, I can't remember the exact thing, it was one of the, one of the questions had um, a person's name or some details in it. And, and the person, one of the candidates I saw actually just used something entirely different. I don't know where it came from, I don't know if they you know, misread it or made something up or what they did, but um, obviously if there are names in the, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the question, you really need to use the names um, and as they stand in, this, in your solution. Um, that's just a stupid mistake and we really don't expect people to do that. Um, yes, question. I, I mean, I, I don't know, I mean, I, it, you know, this is a letter to your mother, um, you can write... Well, to, 
too f f familiar or too casual. Uh, I mean, I think we would be ex we, we'd be happy to accept, you know, if there was cultural differences or um, anything like that, that would be fine. I think you must just be careful that it's not too informal um, or too formal. And I, we'll talk about the tone of, of answering emails and things depending on who it is that you're answering to. So if you're writing to your mother, I mean, I wouldn't, I would really hate for you to write, um, dear Mrs. Temple, um, you know, and then give an email because I would never write to my mother like that. Um, you know, I would probably write, hi mom, or something like that. And if, if, you know, what you write is from a culturally acceptable perspective, we would not penalize you for that at all. But I think you must make sure that your tone is correct. That's the, that's the crux of it, really, from our perspective. Answer your question? Um, the third thing I want to talk about is, sorry, yes, another question over there. I meant to let you speak into the mic, so I'm going to walk down here. And um, so if, if someone makes a fatal error, does that translate into a symbol like an FD or they can make a fatal error and still get an FA? Or is it just a straight fail and you don't mark the paper any further? We still mark the paper, but um, um, I, I would say most times if the person was a parsant, then I would drop them to an FA um, uh, or maybe an FB, but it wouldn't. Um, mo most, I would say most of the time people who make fatal errors there probably a few of them end up with FDs anyway because they're really already poor anyway. So, um, but but yeah, if it's a marginal candidate, I'd probably drop them to an FA. Um, that's what you would normally see. Um, the third thing that I've got is word count. Um, I made this point. Um, I know both here in Joburg and in Cape Town the last session. Um, if the question asks for a word count, and they always do, um, then you need to put the word count down accurately. Um, if you misrepresent the word count, um, that is going to be an automatic fail. So we had two candidates in the last session that clearly misrepresented the word count. Um, they were what they had put down for the word count was a hundred uh, or more different from re their real word count. Um, we have computers. We also able to count, um, and um, and that was picked up by the communications markers. Um, we failed both of those candidates. In, in fact, um, I was very tempted to phone the two people involved and have a conversation with them about uh, professional and ethical behavior um, because I think that is actually testing your ethics. And we are an ethical profession um, and we don't expect if you misrepresent the word count, you will fail. I can promise you that right now. Um, I'm not talking about uh, one or two word difference. So some people sometimes manage to add the thing up incorrectly anyway. Um, when, we, we, when we're doing word count, we actually normally even define where you can count from and to. So we say exclude the addresses and count from the dear to the whatever or whatever we do. Um, and that needs to count up to that. Some people still get that wrong. So there might be five or six words different between us and theirs. Um, we, you'll lose marks, but you're not going to, you're not going to pass or fail on that. But as I said, the two people that actually did fail, that they had the word count was different by over a hundred, um, so it was a substantial difference. Uh, and we do note those things. Don't do it unless you want to write again. Um, the next thing I wanted to say is regards tone. Um, what I always ask people, and I always say, is when you finished, you should read through the letter and say, "Would you be happy?" to receive this letter or would you be happy and and or would you be happy to put your name behind this letter um, th that is a, a crux of a question in fact you'll see actually the communications markers actually ask themselves that question every time they mark the exam 
and we often sometimes have marks for that even so we'll actually allocate marks to the the examiners to uh, the markers to be able to make that subjective call to say would I would be happy to receive this letter or would I be happy um, to have my name signed to this letter um, and that is a, a really good way of judging the level of the tone that you have got of the letter um, or an email or whatever you might be sending. So please think about that. Just step back from it and think, actually, would I be happy to receive this? If you are a client and you're something meant to be explained to you, would you say, would you, at the end of it, after you've read it, would you be happy to receive it and would you have understood it? It's, that's quite important um, from a tone perspective. Um, the number of times that we hear, I'll, I'll come to you in a moment, let me just finish the, the point. Um, the number of times that I, I see people um, making really patronizing statements um, are, are just incredible. Um, you need to think about who you're writing to. Um, and sometimes when we're asking you to write to somebody you know, with a reasonable amount of technical background and technical knowledge, um, and then you start explaining very simple things to them in very simple language, um, the recipient of that letter is going to be feel very angry and, and patronized at the end of it. I used this example before because uh, a few years back we actually had a letter to um, the Director General of the Finance Department that you had to write explaining something um, and um, one of the candidates uh, explained how inflation, well, explained what inflation was to them. And I would hope that the Director General of the Finance Department knows what inflation is. And that's just a good example of exactly what you shouldn't be doing. It shows to me that the candidate really hasn't thought about who the audience is and what sort of tone they should be taking uh, in the letter. And then sometimes people just make inappropriate remarks entirely. Um, so a few years back we asked, um, the question um, was basically responding to a client who was dying of cancer, who had been told that they had two years left to live. Um, and uh, people would write things like, um, I'm sorry to hear, hear of your cancer, I hope you make the best of your two years. Um, and I kid you not, um, that was somebody said that on the, uh, on the letter. Um, I, I also had somebody say uh, um, something along the lines of, um, I hope the diagnosis was wrong. Um, I'm not sure if I was a cancer patient and I was being told I had two years to live that I would like to receive a letter from a company that says something like that. It's inappropriate. You need to think about it and say, if you were in that situation, would you be happy to receive it? Lots of people battled with how to start that letter. Um, you need to think carefully about how to do it and make sure that your tone is appropriate um, for that particular situation. So that, that's quite an important aspect um, to passing those sort of questions. You had a question. It's not a very good question. I just wanted to know if we missed out for it. I think the numbering just skipped somehow either. So, sorry. Um, I, I thought I'd fixed it, but it uh, seemed to have got back to a strange number. Um, and then the, the point about level um, in terms of what you are trying to demonstrate. Um, it's, it's quite important that you think about the person that you're writing to, so not just from a, a tone perspective, but actually also what sort of level of technical content can you give, what would be acceptable from an explanation point of view, what's not acceptable. So what things can you assume? So if you're writing to your mother, you can assume different things from a technical level perspective than you can if you are writing to another actuary um, or another finance professional. Um, you actually do need to apply your mind to that and ask yourselves those questions. Um, I don't know if people want to pad words, um, but the number of times that people either explain things unnecessarily or repeat things is quite amazing. 
Um, so people sometimes say the same thing and they try to say it in a different way two or three times. Um, that makes it really hard for you to fit into your word count if you're actually explaining the same thing multiple times um, because the question is not designed to allow you to do that. Um, so you should check to see that you haven't repeated yourself. Um, and then obviously the, the most important thing in terms of level is always going to be, I'm always going to gauge your level uh, that you've got it right from the way you write your introduction and the way you write your conclusion. Um, in, the, in that situation. So the content almost is less important than how you start a letter um, in, in answering somebody and how you finish it. Um, that, that is quite important in terms of the, the way that we gauge um, the level of, the, of, the, uh, of a letter. Um, again, um, one of the things that we want to check is sometimes um, you've got to be careful that you don't take a biased or one-sided view. Um, I think again we that the, the, the question a few years back was a letter from the Actual Society to um, the Director General of Finance. You must be careful that you're not taking an industry view in your response in, in that situation. We would expect that actually you're thinking about the profession um, if you're writing from the Actual Society and, and therefore you won't take a commercial you won't take the old mutual view or the Sunlum view or the Investec view or whatever it is. So be careful that you you know you don't have a bias on in industry, a profession, or from your company. And so a lot of people are thinking if you work in a particular company, you might want to defend that company's viewpoint. Um, if the question is not asking you to defend the company's viewpoint, you need to be careful that you don't. Um, just think about that quite carefully um, as well. And then obviously technical content is quite important. Um, one of the things, we, we always are testing some technical concept in relation to the question. Um, it's never just a nebulous, non-actuarial concept and how you would communicate that. We want to test some sort of technical actuarial concept. Um, and it's important for you to identify what that is that we're testing. Um, particularly in a letter or an email, think about it and say, actually, what are they trying to test um, in, from a technical perspective? And then make sure that you cover that properly, um, both from a depth a level and from a, uh, the level and tone that, you, that you're covering off. Um, it is always a good idea to think about whether you can have an illustration or an example to illustrate or, um, or, or give uh, for, your, for your, that particular question. Please don't force that in. Some people sometimes try to force things in. That's not good either. But um, if there's an obvious way of illustrating or showing something uh, on a graph or um, giving an example of, uh, of the situation um, in another way, that is very useful in terms of communication. You should think about it. And you'll see actually most of the model solutions um, for these types of questions that always will have some sort of illustration or example if we can uh, naturally put those in. I've talked a lot about um, just getting the basics um, as well in the past. Get that all up. Um, from our perspective, you, you can lose really easy marks um, by not doing the basics properly. Um, people just, number of times, people don't have the format right or the structure right of a presentation. Um, they don't include word count when we tell them to include the word count or the slide count. Um, they don't put things down like if they're writing a letter explaining something to a client, at the end of it you must have some means for that client to be able to contact you to ask further questions. They just forget that off. They get their addresses wrong, use paragraphs poorly. Um, those things are all going to cost you marks and you don't want to be in a situation where you're losing easy marks 
when they are easily available to you. So um, the course notes, I think, are very clear in terms of what you need to do from a structure perspective. Make sure you do it like that. Um, I would say probably 10 to 20% of people um, probably don't pass just simply because they don't get the basics right. Um, we really do expect you to get the basics right, so don't lose easy marks um, on the basics. Uh, it's, it's quite an easy thing to make sure you don't do. Uh, and spelling and grammar, sorry, that was the last one that's up there. And the spelling and grammar staggers me because um, you're doing it on, you're writing, you're typing the thing on Word, um, and Word very kindly highlights um, your spelling errors for you. Uh, I can understand if you type there, um, T-H-E-R-E, -E, when you're meant to be typing T-H-E-R-R-E, -E, and that's not picked up from a spell check. But um, the number of times that we see people's answers with clear spelling errors, which would definitely have been highlighted um, on Word, uh, still staggers me. And again, you're just losing easy, simple marks um, that are getting taken off from a communications aspect. So please make sure that you just make sure you've done a spell check um, by the end of it as well. Is anybody any questions? That's the sort of general stuff. Ryan's going to go into the detail of um, the communications paper, the, the last session's one, before I hand over to Ryan. All right, what I like to do when looking at the questions is to try and break it down into pieces. Um, the first thing with this one was to establish what the facts are. What information are you given? And this one centered all around the life expectancy that was quoted in a newspaper article. Okay. Um, so you were also given some information of some research you'd done um, that highlighted HIV and some issues around HIV you were given some current fund membership um, by age and gender. You were told to ignore entrance to the fund. You could ignore exits other than death. And then you were given some life table statistics. Okay. So once you've established all the facts and information that you're given, the next step is to establish all the instructions that you've been given. Now in this one, the question was very explicit about what you had to answer. Um, and you'll find this in a lot of the questions. They're guiding you through a process of getting to the conclusion. Um, so it's very important that you identify each of those instructions and make sure you follow them. A lot of people lose marks because they don't, they don't complete all the instructions. They omit a significant number of the instructions. Okay. So this one you had to start off by giving some, a definition of life expectancy. You had to include some reasons for why life expectancy might have changed up until 2005. Um, and you'd been given a clue in the question that that had to relate to, to HIV. Um, then the two other time periods, 2005 to 2014, and then after 2014, what could you expect? Um, all right, you had to just make sure that the audience understood why the specific number was not particularly attributable to, to any individual, okay, which is quite important. Then you had to do some calculations, and this, this proved to be a, a, a major sticking point for a lot of candidates in this paper. So I'll come to that one in more detail just now. Uh, calculated the expected age of death, so once you had the life expectancy, that was quite easy. Um, and then lastly, calculate the proportion of people who were actually going to retire, because remember the fund members' concern here was that because life expectancy was less than 65, there was no point in saving for retirement. They wouldn't get to retirement. But we have to show them that's actually not, that's not correct. All right, so the three things that most, that a lot of candidates admitted 
were, were those bottom three instructions. Um, what would happen after 2014? A large proportion of candidates didn't cover that. Um, the life expectancy calculation, and then even the proportion of members getting to 65. There was a very high proportion of candidates who didn't calculate that. Um, the other thing you need to just bear in mind is that there, in that um, set of instructions that I identified, there were, there were eight of them. You've only got ten slides. So you need to be able to fit in answering all of those within your ten slides, and you still need to be able to do the introduction, your contents, and your, or your, what you're planning to, follow, planning to set out. And then uh, you need space for a conclusion. So it is a, it's a tight fit. You need to use your, your slides appropriately. Okay, so let's deal with that life expectancy calculation one. Um, so I think in a lot of probably uh, less than well, a very, very small portion of candidates actually managed to do this. So what do you do in a situation where you get a question and you, are, you don't get the formula and you are unable to recall it and you uh, can't derive it? Then what? What do you do? Um, so what you can do in this situation here is make an educated guess. You th we're not testing the process of getting to the answer. Uh, we just asked for the life expectancy number. You can make an informed guess of what it could be. But I think what you need to do then is highlight to the examiner that you have done that. Not in your presentation itself, because you're not presenting that to your audience, but in the notes section or something like that. Just draw attention to the fact, to the examiner, yes, I understand this is not, I haven't calculated this correctly. Uh, I don't know, if, I haven't got the details to do so. Um, I've made an informed guess. And then you carry on. Because I suspect what happened with a lot of these candidates who got stuck on this question, it derailed them through the rest of the paper. Um, they spent too much time worrying about it and then put themselves under pressure for the rest of it. So if you get stuck like that, that is one of the solutions to be able to, to deal with that situation. If it, was. it doesn't excuse not trying and candidates who get it right will do better. Okay. Um, Right, and then just continue to focus on communicating. Um, so you don't want to lose points because you're now distracted by this calculation that you forget about how you are communicating the message to your audience. Okay. All right, this one surprised me how many people didn't uh, follow through with this calculation. Um, it was fairly straightforward application of probabilities to a number of people. Um, but a very high proportion of candidates didn't follow through on actually completing the calculation. Um, so this one, perhaps less excusable that you weren't able to do it. At this level, you should be able to apply probability uh, factors to a uh, group of people. Um, the other important thing about this question, in doing this calculation was, it was the crux of the conclusion. Um, to be able to show that 71% of members were actually going to get to 65. That was the message that you had to get across at the end. And that's what dispelled the members' concern um, that there was no point in saving for retirement. Okay. All 
Right, and then Peter mentioned just when you've read the question, just try and get a good feel for what are we trying to examine? What are we after? Um, so here, the, just perhaps make some notes for yourself is what's, what's, the, what's the big picture? What's the main story that's going through this? And the key things in this one was that you had a life expectancy at birth. It's not a useful statistic for people who are 30 and 50 years old. Um, and therefore, it invalidated the conclusion that the members were drawing from the, from the article. And most were going to retire and they would need, and they would need to save for retirement. Okay. So if you just have a high-level quick view as to what, what are we trying to get to, it will help you with your conclusion, it will help you with trying to build your argument. All right, then a couple of other things that, that go wrong uh, fairly often. Um, Peter mentioned this one is the accuracy. So copying numbers incorrectly from the question paper to your answer paper. It happens a lot. Um, and I know it's probably the exam pressure. You, you focus on trying to meet the, the time limits. Um, and those simple, silly errors creep in. But they, they can cost you dearly. So um, make sure that you're using the right information, that you're copying information across. Um, calculation errors. Um, in the next question, I'll highlight some that just are astounding that they're made. They really shouldn't be, they're errors that shouldn't be made. And then also accuracy applies to choice of words. Um, so your choice of words, the example that I highlighted there was the definition of life expectancy. So many people um, refer to it as an age that someone lives to, whereas that's only the case at birth. Now you need it to be more specific. It's the number of years that someone is going to live from an age. Um, so it's very, very important that you actually make sure that you use the words to get across the meaning that you, that you want. Okay. Um, also look for opportunities to use the information that you've been given. Um, very rarely is there information given in the question that you don't need. Okay, so if the information is there, it probably needs to be used somewhere. Um, so that's a clue that if perhaps I've missed one of the instructions, I've seen in a piece of information, I haven't used it yet, think about where you might have omitted using it. Um, and there were some examples here where you could, people omitted the, the research that was presented back on, the, on HIV. Some people admitted to, to covering um, the implications of that, even though it was given in the, in the question. Okay. Um, just giving, making sure you give a balanced view. So it's always expected, as, as Peter mentioned, you need to give the balanced view. But where in particular you have to be very careful is when you look forward. Um, so the question around what can you expect to happen after 2014, you can't be, we're not clairvoyants, um, we're just trying to give a view of what we think might happen. And in that view, if there are alternatives that could happen, then highlight that. So that it emphasizes that you are giving a balanced view, particularly about things that are looking forward. Okay. All right, and then lastly, make sure your conclusion addresses your original question. Okay, so when you've started your correspondence, you've set out with an objective of getting a particular message across to the client. 
or, or to the recipient. At the end of the presentation, in this case, your conclusion needs to sum that up and make sure that they've got the most important message. Okay. Um, a lot of candidates will just have a, a, key, a couple of key items that in the summary or the conclusion that they've drawn from the, um, what they've produced so far. But that's not what the conclusion needs to do. The conclusion needs to tie it all together and make sure that the whole message was, was got across. Okay. All right. Okay. Any, any questions on the, any other questions? Sorry, any questions on the sort of technical content of the question? Yeah, I mean, we just strengthen what Ryan said as well. I mean, the, the, some of the, the classic things that I saw certainly in that technical content was is that people um, couldn't explain what life expectancy was. So, I mean, Ryan's used the, the words. Um, some people just clearly didn't understand what life expectancy was, and we do think that you, at this stage in your actual career, should know what life expectancy is. So, um, you know, that's, that's a sort of, of uh, thing that doesn't impress an examiner or a marker when you, can, you can't really describe what life expectancy is or you're very muddled in your approach. I think, I think that's quite a, a key aspect to it. Um, uh, the other concern that people had was, given that it was a relatively technical question, um, and if you didn't remember the formula, um, you know, how, how, how few people could actually really pass. Um, the interesting thing that I want to say is, is that actually people performed better on question one than they did on question two. Um, and question two didn't rely on a formula and a technical ability. It was more of a communications question. So um, were the final results impacted by um, the technical nature of question one? My answer would be no. Um, actually, I think uh, those people who communicated well on question one without even having um, the calculation or done the calculation, they still passed, um, and it was really it was a question about how you communicated the facts across. Um, so I think that was it was quite an important aspect to it. Um, the other thing I just I, I think is worth probably noting um, in terms of what Ryan also said in terms of the communications aspect of it, and particularly the conclusion. Um, is that a lot of people don't know how to conclude slide presentations. Uh, as Ryan said, it's not just a question of drawing the um, three things out and just putting them back in again or repeating things. People often just repeat the same phrases that they put in the presentation. You really need to think about what is the message that you are trying to convey at the end of the presentation. So please, please bear that in mind um, as well from a communication perspective. Um, the communications markers actually put through some slides, so neither I nor I are actually in a great position to actually talk on these slides, but I'm going to run through them very briefly, just running through one or two things that I think are important. Um, but they will be in the slide deck, which will go onto the ASA website, so you can pick these up from there, and you can work through them in your own time. Um, but just to comment on a few aspects of them, so I'm not going to, as I said, I'm not going to cover everything in the, um, in the slides that they've put together. But I mean, what we are looking for, and it's, it's the same point that I've said before, is we really are looking for this cohesive message that must come through in your slide presentation. So um, the way it's structured actually will drive whether or not we think you um, are deserving of a pass in the end. So that is quite crucial. And the communications people in particular are looking for an overall impression. They don't understand the technical content, so they're not even interested in whether you've got the right life expectancy uh, or the right calculations. They don't even look at that at all. 
Um, so, so bear that in mind. I, I can't remember the exact marks, Ryan, um, in terms of the tech. I know we don't put the mark schedule out, but um, I think you only lost four marks, if I remember correctly. So Ryan's nodding his head. So we are, there were only four marks if you actually did, got those life expectancy numbers correct. Now, just bear that out of 200 because um, the technical markers basically are marking out of 100 and the communication aspect is marked out of 100. So you, it is not going to cause you to pass or fail if you didn't get those four marks. Um, but it's, I think as Ryan pointed out, it did cause a lot of people to flounder in the exam. Um, so just some of the things in terms of the detail of the range of slides um, that you need. The title slide, just basic things again, and we've talked about the basics, the title, the date, uh, for whom it's being presented and who is doing the presenting just has to be there on the title slide again the number of people that just don't do that on the title slide staggers me um, so please uh, don't throw away easy marks um, we do want a, a road map basically of where you're going to go and it's I know it's in a sense it's a bit of an abnormal thing in that you're doing a presentation for us to read rather than you actually presenting it but you should be thinking about the fact that I, I could be presenting this and if you were standing up here doing a presentation explaining um, and answering that question from the trustees, in fact, you would be saying to the trustees, this is what I'm going to cover. Um, and so you need to be thinking like that um, in, in the approach. And, and you can see the same point comes through in the communications markers that you need to answer all of the questions that are being put to you. Make sure that all of the instructions are being met. Um, Ryan said questions, I think you said really um, don't have words that are wasted. Um, in fact, I would go one step further to say that we are fastidious about making sure that the words that are in the question are actually needed. Um, so if there's irrelevant facts in there, we would generally take those out. Um, so in some way in the process between the marker who sets it, uh, the examiner who sets it to the oversight that gets done, uh, we would actually remove irrelevant facts because we don't want um, people often to, to be misled. Sometimes if you're asking to distill something um, or we're asking you to summarize something, we might have a whole lot of stuff and we want you to pull the most important facts out of that. But generally, um, the question is giving you the exact instructions of what you need to follow and there aren't wasted words. So if there's something in there about HIV, you need to make sure that there's something in your answer about HIV. And in fact, that just doesn't apply to communications exam. That applies to all of the actual exams. Um, so you can apply that, that principle to all of them. Okay, just uh, the rest of the, the range of, of slides and coherence. Um, obviously, the body needs to address the points. Um, as Ryan pointed out in, that, in this question, there were eight um, instructions, actually. So you pretty much had um, to cover at least one per slide. Um, or if you wanted if you wanted to finish everything, you probably actually need to cover more than one in some of the slides um, to be able to fit it into the 10 slides. Um, and then, as Ryan pointed out, they're looking to see, it, does the concluding slide bring everything together? Does it actually finish off the presentation rather than just repeat the facts that you've got in the presentation itself? Um, so some of the detail just in terms of headings. Um, we would have liked to, one of the things that we asked people to do is to say things like explain life expectancy. Um, that's such an easy thing to then have as a heading. So you'll see we would have expected that the major heading of slide three would be what is life expectancy. And then um, for you to have used that slide to explain life expectancy. It's, it's a very straightforward thing to do. 
Um, and, and yet I would say very few candidates actually use that as a heading. Um, and we've given, we given you the heading effectively in the instructions that we had um, of, the, of the question itself. Um, so please um, be careful of that. The, the, the comments here are actually, um, I don't know what the, you know what the comment is, what's wrong with slide eight? Okay, so uh, I'm not sure what that comment is. I'm sorry, I'll, if I can find it, I'll post, send through the detail um, on that particular point. Um, the internal coherence and overall vision, uh, visual impact of the slide. So sort of, again, looking at things and saying, um, is there consistency in terms of the way that you're doing things? Or, and is it, is it visually attractive to the, the audience? So putting in a graph or putting in, um, you know, having the whole presentation points like we've got here um, is not that great and not that visually attractive. Um, but you, and you can, if you can come up with a graph or you can come up with some sort of graphic um, that breaks the flow of it, um, it definitely helps. And and the communications markers like that. So um, think of it um, in terms of the approach that you that you're having um, when you when you're structuring your things. Can you put a graph in? Can you put something in that actually changes and makes things look a little bit different? I'm appreciative that presentation is quite boring in comparison to what I would normally expect. Um, again, uh, we've talked about language and we've said language a number of times. Um, language is quite crucial in terms of who you're presenting to here. So this um, was, uh, I think, to a set of trustees. So you would need to, or the, 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 uh, the members of the fund, you would need to be able to use examples and say things which they would understand. So that's quite crucial and quite important. Um, and make sure that all of those things um, are appropriate as well. And then again, I mean, the, the communications markers actually had specific um, marks available for the overall impression that, that the presentation gave them. Um, so they would look at everybody's, and again, they're not looking at the content, they're looking at what they feel the presentation would have come across. Um, is it coherent? Does it have a logical development? And what's the sort of structure of, and the feel of it? So all of those things are quite important from a communications perspective, and you can score um, half your marks um, on the communication side of things. Peter, um, one thing that I know I really struggled with with the presentation is what to actually include with regards to the words because you know when you when you present a presentation it's easier to put together because there's aspects of it that you can actually explain but when you're writing it out it, it gets a bit tricky because some sentences are obviously a bit too long to include in a presentation so you know and especially with the fact that there isn't a word count you sort of struggle with how much to include and what's important and what's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a good point and it's a good question. Um, we, um, we do look at that. So um, if you write a paragraph in your presentation, um, it's not going to go down well with the communications people and you're going to lose lots of marks. Um, but I think we also are appreciative of the fact that sometimes, you know, I might be able to put up one line on tone um, and, and I can explain that when I'm standing here in front of you, but um, you wouldn't be able to do that in, in an exam question. So you probably do have to have a little bit more um, in terms of words than you would have if you were just having an opportunity to explain. But be careful that you don't get yourself caught into sentences and, um, and paragraphs. Um, it was somebody in the, I don't know if it was this exam or the previous one, um, their, their presentation, I mean, it was terrible. Um, they were about 
each bullet point had four or five lines. Um, you know, it was it was like an essay, and I mean that's clearly not right. So you probably would have slightly more than you would have if you were just doing it as a verbal presentation. Um, but make sure it's still not um, long sentences. Um, so it, 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 that is the is the trick. Um, if you have a look at the model solutions, you can see some of the model solutions have slightly more words than probably we would have liked. Um, but I think that's that you know we understand that 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 is because you're doing it as a written. Any other questions on that? Oh, that's question one. As I said, question one was actually answered better than question two, even though people thought that they did worse on question one. And so most people actually, I think, I think the marks, I think it was about five percent difference actually between question one and question two, um, from an overall perspective. All right. So for question two. Go through the same process. You need to have this buttoned down as a standard process that you apply in tackling these questions. Um, so here are all the facts. You'd got an email from your mother, you needed to reply to your mother and explain why this offer was so looked so attractive, but then recommend to her that she didn't take it. So immediately it sounded confusing. Um, so you had to make head or tail of what was going on. Um, so there were the facts. Um, I think what I'd let a lot of people down in this question is not getting the facts right. Um, there seemed to be some misunderstanding of some of the numbers and how they're related to each other. Um, and when, you, when we saw that the initial trial papers, we went back to the question, checked was it clear as to what the numbers meant and what they were, how they were intended to use, and we were happy it was clear enough, but there still were a few who misinterpreted what some of the numbers were. I'll, I'll come to that now. Um, Right, so here again, there were quite a few instructions that you had to follow. Um, the important one was write an email with your word count. Um, you had to put in how much she, was she going to pay for the benefits, both the death benefit and the cashback benefit. How much was she going to get out? So these were fairly simple calculations. You then had to do a little comparison. So if you were to invest money she was paying for those benefits at the 12% a year, how much would she get out from that? And then maybe the one that was a little tricky was explain how. How did, the, how did the company get to this generous, it appeared to be a very generous benefit? Uh, I'll deal with that just now. Okay, draw attention to the risks. Most questions like this will have something about risk in it, so you need to be able to identify where could this go wrong. Uh, and then make a recommendation that she doesn't take it, and then you have to use those numbers that you've been given to, to illustrate. Okay, those were your examples. You were, you were told how, what example to use. All right, so of the instructions that were omitted, um, these were the, the three most common. Um, so explaining how the cashback is so generous. Um, many and on the risks, little detail on the risks. I'll cover that just now. And then the comparison to an investment at 12%. Okay. Okay, so, so this question, in, in answering how the company could offer such a generous benefit, you had to perhaps think a little bit about where the money was going, who was getting and who wasn't getting money. Um, and the benefit design gave you some clues. 
The benefit design said that if the person didn't pay their premiums or they cancelled the policy or if they died, they didn't get anything back. So that money is going somewhere. That was the indication that um, that's where this generous return was coming from. Okay. Um, okay, the important point here is that if you're going to convince someone that something is correct, you have to be able to give them a reasonable explanation. You can't just make a statement that something is right and not support it with anything. Um, so a lot of people might have just made the statement that the number is correct, because we've said in previous sessions that you need to always confirm that something's right. But if you, if you do make that statement, you do need to substantiate. You do need to explain why it's, why it's correct. Otherwise, it's not, it's not believable to the, to the reader. Okay. So it was an important part here to come up with some good plausible reasons as to why the benefit was, uh, was generous, how they could make it a generous benefit. Okay, and then be careful of getting trapped in looking at just one element. So in this example, there were quite a few risks that you could identify. Most, um, most people focused on the risk that the premium could go up in future. But there were some more fundamental risks if your mother had bought this benefit. There were some more fundamental risks to her owning it than the premiums going up in the future. There was the fact that if she didn't need any more and she cancelled it, she that she'd put in. Um, if she missed a premium, she would lose the benefit. So there were other risks that were mostly ignored um, because people just focused on one particular risk. Also, when you're answering a question about risks, think about the relative importance of risks because not all risks are the same. And there's an opportunity to look for something and say, yes, this is a risk, but actually it's, it's unlikely. Okay? And that's where you'll see, often see comments that the market is well regulated or something like that because it's well managed. The risk of the company going insolvent and not being able to pay the benefits. Yes, there's a risk, but it's very, very small. So those are useful things to look out for as opportunities for marks. Okay. All right, then just doing the compound interest calculations. It's also a very basic actual um, concept that you need to be able to do. A lot of people who did get them wrong. Um, so you have to make sure you can do these accurately and quickly anytime. Okay. Um, but the important thing to be able to show that the benefit was valuable if it was just the cash back on its own, roll up the premium, the 165 Rand at 12%, and show that the cashback offered much better value at 128,000 versus the 63,000 that it rolled up to. But that if you invested the whole premium, the 715, you'd get substantially more than the 128,000. Okay, so that was the, the catch. Okay, so again, sort of what's the, what's the big picture? What's going on? Okay, those that meet the cashback benefits get a benefit, those who don't get nothing. Um, and then what's it worth if I need the death benefit and I'm paying that premium for it? Yes, it's a valuable benefit. The cashback is a valuable benefit. But if, what's it worth if I don't need the death benefit? I'm just having to pay that premium to access the cashback. Okay, so that was what was going on. All right. 
All right, so this is where some of the confusion came into interpreting the numbers. So it's about reading the question carefully. Um, so there was a 550 rand premium for the death benefit, but quite a number of people interpreted the 550 to be the total premium, inclusive of the 30%. And on rereading the question, by the markers reading the question, going over it, there really wasn't a reason to interpret that from the question. So you have to make sure that you interpret it correctly. Okay, so as soon as you get that wrong, it, it, it messes up all the numbers and you're going to struggle to make up um, a sensible conclusion. Okay. Um, calculation errors. Um, the one that floored me was the multiplication. So it's 715 times 12 times 15. Um, all sorts of different numbers. Um, you cannot make mistakes like that. Um, even though you might be under time pressure to, to finish it. Okay, um, and then as I mentioned, accumulating the 165 and the 715 at 1% a month, 15 years. You know, it should be able to do it quite quickly and easily. Okay, another thing just to, you know, I know you're under time pressure and there are lots of things that you need to think about and do, but just check for reasonability. Um, we see examples where someone's got an accumulation with interest that adds up to something, that accumulates to something that is more than just Sorry, that is less than the total of, the, of what's going in. There's something wrong. Um, go back, revisit it. So just have an, a look at it. Does, it. does it make sense when you're reading those numbers? Do they, do they correspond with the other numbers that are in your, uh, in your workings? Okay. All right. Um, then be specific about your comparison. So if you're trying to highlight the difference between two things or how one thing compares to another, directly draw the reader's attention to it. Don't just state two facts and then hope that the reader is going to establish the relationship between them or, or do the comparison themselves. Okay. Um, especially if it's someone like um, a layperson, in this case your mother, who probably doesn't know the first thing about life insurance or the benefits then you need to be quite specific about the, um, comparing the results and making sure they actually get the message that you, you wanted to get across. Okay. Also look for opportunities where information can be used more than once. We've said there won't be any wasted information, but in this question, there were actually, when you looked at that cance policy cancelled, premiums missed, life assured died, those three pieces of information could be used in three different, in answering three different of the, Sorry, three of those instructions. Um, it was one of the, it was part of the benefit features. It was part of the risks to the person who buys the product, um, and it also explained how it was a generous benefit. So don't just assume that once you've used it once, it doesn't can't be used again. Okay, um, if it makes sense as part of answering the instructions, then you can make make use of that information again. Okay, um, and it's I don't think that is being repetitive. That is answering a different question, and you can't expect the layperson then to um, draw a link from answering a different instruction. Okay. All right, any questions on that one? And just to um, supplement what Ryan was saying as well, I, I saw one person's answer um, uh, 
saying this, uh, about the question about saying yes, the numbers are correct. Um, somebody actually, I think, said uh, started the email like this and said, um, "Thanks for writing to me, Mom. Um, my actual training hasn't gone to waste. Um, the numbers are definitely correct. Trust me." Um, and um, your mother may or may not be trustworthy, <laughs> be trusting of you in those circumstances. But um, I think the markers are not going to give you marks for that. So um, you do need to, I, I just strengthen Ryan's point there, is to say you do need to have justification as to why um, what you're suggesting or your numbers, your calculations are correct, not just um, I'm an actuary, trust me. Um, I, I don't think people um, always will do that in the future. So um, bear that in mind as well. Um, just some of the general stuff just firstly on the email side of things so I have talked about the structure and making sure that you get the structures um, and you have thought about who you're writing to so in this particular case you needed to think clearly that it's my mother how would I write an email to my mother and and when you are finished you should read it and say is this the type of email I would have written to my mother um, I think probably you know 25 percent of candidates if they'd stopped and done that um, I think they would have been surprised um, and realized actually they haven't written at the at the right level um, with the right sort of uh, of tone so um, think very carefully about that just um, from a structure perspective um, those that is the way that we would normally expect people to do sometimes we say um, you can leave out the address line and just look at the question and see what it says um, but if not that's what you should be be doing from a structure perspective um, and your your uh, greeting obviously needs to be appropriate for the person you're writing to um, and then again one of the key things is going to be your opening paragraph in terms of how you were responding um, to somebody so please make sure then there must be a logical train of thought um, we do look for that so it doesn't make sense as people move through in terms of the content um, again if you can give examples it's examples um, so please do that and um, avoid anything that's jargon uh, there are a lot of actuaries we use a lot of things that we just sort of expect compound interest um, words like that which we uh, might just use as your normal day-to-day -day language when people lay people will not know so be careful that you haven't got any jargon in your answer to questions um, particularly to lay people um, um, you can see also they say things like stock phrases and cliches I think lots of people do that a lot of times and then obviously you need to have a, an appropriate conclusion making sure that it's clear if if we asked and um, sometimes we ask for advice we say recommend a course of action or whatever please make sure that your your conclusion does cover that as well uh, and then an appropriate greeting depending on on what it needs to be so if you just look at the the sample solution and um, there was a sample solution posted you can go and have a look at the details of it um, but uh, and this will give you an idea of how where the marks come from as well we don't normally publish all of that but um, this will give you uh, some degree of idea of, of that so the length and um, there are four marks available for sticking to the word count and um, the sample solution was 505 words um, right between the 475 and 525 and um, it excludes the greeting and the sign-off so you didn't have to count those um, then the format and actually they the communications person said is actually a great example of, of how to format it and, and the tone to use because your mother had written to you so you can actually copy that in return to her um, that was the easy way to, to get um, to what you needed to get to um, so um, and the greeting needs to be informal so 
hi mom, dear mom, and you finish with love, whatever, um, as your as your answer. Um, so please make sure that you do that. Um, and then make sure it's not colloquial. Uh, I think somebody actually did put how's it um, in um, as as the heading that I saw. Um, so it sounds again ridiculous, but yet uh, people somehow manage to do it. Or you know, and you definitely wouldn't use you know some very formal greeting for your mother either. Um, Sixteen marks on the language. Um, so focused on um, on the words that you use. Um, the 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 level of language that you're using is it appropriate for your mother um avoiding jargon all of that stuff so that's that is quite a, a key aspect to the total marks um how explainable and understanding is it um and you've got to be careful in terms of what you um, and obviously make sure that you're not misstating facts so in fact i did say that earlier uh, the markers the communication markers picked up a whole lot of misstatement of facts and they weren't even the technical people so they were saying i you know i can calculate how many ever premiums it was um and it's just a straightforward multiplication and and certainly um you would think your mother even could do that calculation so if you get that wrong um i would if i was your mother i'd be wondering what i did spend my training um uh, money for in terms of your training and actually a lot of those candidates who who didn't get those calculations right they failed and um, we didn't necessarily treat it as a fatal flaw but but it it did um, damage your credibility and ability to answer the question. Um, so please make sure that you get the language right. And the thing is it got almost double penalized because it got penalized in the technical marks and then the communications markers when they looked at the content and, and the language communicate, uh, penalized people again. Um, so that's why most of those people didn't pass. Um, you do need to plan and structure your answers. Um, we actually give marks for it. So we and the communications markers will actually look and say, does this answer make sense? Does it look like somebody actually spent some time thinking about how they were going to answer this question uh, before they actually answered it? So there are quite a lot of marks there, 15 marks um, based on that. So it's, it's imperative that you think and spend time actually doing that as well. And then, as I said, we um, we generally do it, not always, but we generally give marks for overall impression. Um, and in this particular case, there were 10 marks available on the overall impression, which is um, questions like things that we will ask ourselves are, how does the whole email hang together? Does it feel right from our perspective? Would mom follow the explanation that you've given? Um, does that make sense? Um, and those are the, the ways we actually we would we would think about that. And then again, the simple things like grammar mistakes, typos, um, and omissions is not a good thing. So if your mom has asked you for something and you haven't answered it, um, you know obviously that's not going to reflect well on you. So those are all important aspects and score relatively heavily. Uh, I want to ask one question before we take any other questions um, from you guys. Um, how many people who wrote that exam answered question two before they answered question one? Okay, so there's about four or five people in total. Um, if I was doing this exam, I would have definitely written question two before I did question one. Um, it's one of the things I say to students, I actually lecture a whole lot of courses in actuarial um, thinking. You do not need to answer questions in the order that they are set. So you don't have to go through from question one through to question t 10. And in the same thing with the communications, you don't have to do question one before you do question two. You can do question two before you do question one. And I would have done it because um, of two things. One, that presentation had a technical uh, aspect to it, which required you to 
think a little bit and if you are going to be under pressure in terms of, th of the calculations, you want to leave that um, for second. Um, two, this was actually a lot easier question to answer in my view. Um, I would have answered this question much quicker. I probably would have used a third of the time to answer this and used two-thirds of my time to do the presentation. So a lot of people think I'm going to allocate 50-50 of my time. I uh, don't think you should think about that. You should say, can I answer one of these questions better and quicker in less time available, which gives me more time to answer the more complicated question. So I would have definitely done question two first, and I would have spent probably about a third of my time on question two, and I would have given myself two-thirds of my time to do the presentation, which I think was a harder question, um, and it would have probably consumed more of my time. Uh, that may have varied, so you might be the first person to write down the, the formula and feeling like you could have knocked off the first question quickly, but I, my guess is the bulk of candidates probably should have done question two first and not question one first, and yet very few people did that. So think about the order that you do questions in. Free advice for your technical papers as well. Um, I'm the examiner on the A301 exam, and um, and I can tell you that the number of times that I can see the people who have failed um, or don't get to the last question, and often they are doing very well on the last question, um, and they just have run out of time. And if they actually started with that last question, which tends to always be the, the biggest mark question, um, they would have done much better, and they possibly would have passed the paper. So don't answer questions in the sequence that you find them in exams. Figure out which answers you want to answer and you know good answers um, and answer it in that sequence. Uh, it's the best piece of advice I can give you um, and probably the one the least of you will follow. Um, so I'm fully aware of that because I can see the answers are done in the structures um, of the questions, but you really, really shouldn't be answering it in the way the exam is set. You should be thinking about what you want to do in terms of answering the, the paper, it's something you can control. Has anybody got any other questions, anything that they would like to ask while you have Ryan and myself here? Okay, we've got a couple. I'll take one back and I'll come back to you. I find the communications papers are very much focused on life or pensions or investments and then there's some of the areas that's never questioned. Do you think there's an advantage if you work in the life space that you would be able to answer a life question easier and then if you're in a different area that you actually don't work that you would actually have a disadvantage? Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I do think we try to ask diverse questions. Um, it's we, what you might be suggesting is that we're not successful in that. Um, so we'll think a bit about more about it. So um, in future, um, but yeah, I mean, I, th I think we do try to ask questions that are not necessarily in a particular field. They are sometimes in a field, and it's sometimes a lot easier to ask certain questions. So. You know, doing a presentation to the trustees of a pension fund, it's an easy thing for us to ask. Um, I, I don't think there was anything in there that actually would challenge your technical knowledge um, and would, if you were in the field, could you do better? Possibly. Um, I, th I think it's, it's, it's something that you should be able to pass. Um, I do think we also try to do questions that are generic in nature. Um, and not necessarily based on one field or another. Um, so this one did have a life, effectively a life question and a pensions question. 
um, or li and dealt with life expectancy as well. Um, but some of the other papers, uh, if you look back, you'll see uh, actually uh, might just be a simple compound interest question, which any actuary, really, regardless of what field you work in, you should be able to do well enough in. Um, and even you know this question on the out the the um, uh, the bonus side of things, um, cash back bonus. I mean that that was really more compound interest question than 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 a life question per se. Um, but I, I think it's a good point, and we certainly will, as examiners, I mean, we, we, we don't try to, f to focus on a particular field. We don't want to give, you know, just an advantage because you happen to be in that field. But having said that, sometimes I think it's, you know, the question might, you might just know the answer easier and better. Um, I, I remember, I've, I said this last time I did a presentation, when I, I wrote the communications exam, um, the, uh, the question asked me to explain APR, um, I did it through the UK. I had not the foggiest idea what APR actually stood for at the time. Um, I remember the concept of it from a, in a compound interest thing, but I couldn't remember even what the three letters stood for. It's bloody hard to pass an exam when you can't explain to the person actually what the three letters stand for. And they didn't explain it. They didn't say it in the question. So, um, you know, anybody who was living in the UK clearly, you know, use it all the time, and they would have known what to have said. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't in that position. So it, it does, your knowledge can affect your, your ability to pass the exam. I didn't pass, no, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, it's hard to pass an exam when you can't explain the concept to them. <laughs> and I knew I didn't pass straight away. <laughs> I know you say we shouldn't use jargon. So I guess my question is, what do we then use if we can't use the word inflation rate or we can't use the word compound interest? How do we get around that? I'm trying to pass it off to Ryan, but he doesn't want to. Um, I think sometimes you can use the word. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if your, your mother's asked you for an explanation of um, something, you, I think you can use that word, um, but you must be careful that you're not using, like compound interest. I wouldn't use the phrase compound interest to explain something. You can say to your mother, you know, what happens is you get growth on your interest, you know, something like that. You need to go for a layman's explanation of it. Um, so I think the problem is a lot of times we don't even think about the use, you know, the not using jargon. We just throw them in there, um, and uh, and that's quite important. Uh, I, the other thing is you can't use the word to explain the word. So um, there were a few people actually that did that in the exam, asked to explain what longevity means, and then they used the word longevity in the explanation. You just can't do that. Um, you, you, and it's just it's a very common thing. People do it all the time. Um, so be, be be aware of that as well. I know you want to comment. The other thing you can try is if you need to use the word inflation, maybe you can if you've got space in words to be able to give some sort of explanation of what what it means. Then I think it becomes less of jargon. It now has some some meaning to the the user. And you can also use an example. So you can say, if you're trying to explain inflation to your mother, you would say, actually, as you know, the price of bread goes up every year, and that's inflation. Um, but, but you know, we didn't, in particular, the question that we did have on inflation was the one with the, the, the director general. We would not have expected you to explain inflation to him. He would have known what inflation is. So that's what you need to think about who you am I writing to. Other questions?
So in the presentation question, um, how important was the conclusion? Say someone had done all the calculations correctly, but maybe ran out of time to make the conclusions, particularly that 71%, uh, how would you view that? Say you had like an empty presentation slide. Not finishing the question is probably not a good thing, um, as a general rule. Um, I mean, the, the, there should be enough time. It's, you've got three hours um, to do the exam plus your reading time. Um, so you, you shouldn't be pressed on time. We try not to make it pressed on time. Um, I, that's, it's not, we're not trying to challenge you in terms of that regard. So uh, it is quite important to actually have the thing finished. And the, the, one of the questions is, what would you do? What would happen in that situation? Well, you're going to lose marks for a couple of things. You're going to lose marks because you haven't got the conclusion. Um, so that's going to be four or five marks gone, and it's going to actually impact both the technical mark and also the communications mark. It's going to impact the overall impression. So um, the, 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 the communications markers are going to say, out of ten, what would a presentation be like if I didn't have a conclusion slide? Um, and they would say, mm, that's not leaving me a good impression. So I, I think you're out of four or five suddenly. You're going to lose another four or five marks straight away from that. So it's going to impact you in a number of places. Um, so I would say it's more important actually to put your structure in place and show that you've got a conclusion than have some of the content um, organized. Um, so I, I would say finish. Um, make sure your letter's signed and make sure your emails are signed off and your presentation's got a conclusion slide. And I would say most people who don't have those are not going to pass. So you're going to battle. I don't know if you want to comment. Yeah, Ryan agrees with me. So, um. uh, any anything else? Anybody got any other questions? Last opportunity. You're welcome to come ask us. We'll be here for a, for a bit, but thank you for coming. I hope you pass. We don't actually want to keep on marking your papers. So, um, so good luck. Um, I trust it goes well. <laughs>